Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss what leadership looks like in the modern insurance business. We talk to insure tech leaders and founders, innovators and change agents from the insurance industry. We also talk to thought leaders from outside the industry, such as organizational psychologists, performance coaches and investment professionals. Anyone who can add value to the conversation on how to lead insurance businesses of the future. Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. Um, this is your host, Alex Bond. This is a good one. Um, I was really lucky to catch up with uh, James Paul of uh, Agile Risk. Um, James is someone that you know I feel great kinship with. Um, he likes to challenge uh, the status quo. Um, and we talk about that in great detail. Um, we talk about the kind of reason for change. Um, we talk about whether the insurance market, or particularly the reinsurance market, is too successful to change and, and, and whether there's a core principle driving it. Because we've seen a lot of tra- change in the insurance tech industry, um, driving into personal lines, into kind of higher volume commercial lines. Um, and it's kind of been a slow creep um, towards kind of reinsurance capital. So it's very interesting to talk about you know, what's driving change in those areas um, and potentially what's held back change in those areas. Um, definitely the phrase, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, comes up a number of times. And I can think about that and how that applies to a lot of the insurance market. You know, James had some really good insight on kind of like profit-driven businesses and the kind of natural imbued um, resistance to change with those and how, you know, speed is so valuable by startups, but does it, add value to an incumbent business. Um, and really, we have a great conversation about groupthink to really change a market, to really change a, a sort of an industry-wide approach to um, a solution uh, and something like reinsurance. Are we able to do it alone? So it's a really good, fun conversation. James is a brilliant guest, um, done some great prep as well. So um, we get some really good answers. And um, so thank you to James for being a great guest. Hope you enjoy the Leadership and Insurance podcast. Good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. I'm your host, Alex Bond. I'm very lucky today to be joined by James Paul of Agile Risk. James, good morning. Hi, good morning, Alex. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm just, I know I've just remarked on this, but I am loving the backdrop. You're looking like the mad professor of insurance. Ah, yeah, someone, someone sent me a picture of, uh, of Bezos with some similarly scrawled on the back of his or the side of his wall which is quite funny it said amazon in big writing maybe i should have a big a for agile too there's no, there's not any secret sauce up there that we should be um you know hiding or um... uh yeah i'm not sure really the um the, i think what we're looking at is is the perennial structure of risk adjusted returns on capital and they've never changed for the for the term of the last 300 years Oh, okay. So I mean, that's, that's definitely not a secret then. <laughs> well, look, James, obviously you and I have, have, have spoken previously, but for the people out there that don't know, don't know you and your business, um, it'd be great if you could introduce Agile Risk and um, yeah, what it is that you guys do. Sure. We're a, we're a venture-backed um, uh, risk intermediation team in London. And what we're uh, trying to do is drive down the total cost of risk for, for clients Mm-hmm. And we're doing that by creating a new asset class, by, by securitizing risk. Um, there's traditionally been uh, the resolve of, of traditional reinsurance markets or, or is too difficult to, to insure or transfer 
in, entirely. And we've, um, we've seen the 25-year-old cat bond structure, and we're synthesizing that in a slightly different context um, to create value for our clients, but also to create risk-adjusted returns on capital um, <laughs> for, for capital providers in, in private capital markets, in, in institutional investors and pension funds, um, yeah, family offices in some cases too. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Good summary. That's a well. That's what I love about getting entrepreneurs on. They got a really well practiced summary of, um, of the business. <laughs> Engraved um, on my heart somewhere. My wife is, you know, she, not again, not again. Or <laughs> <laughs> um, well, at least you don't have to say you're an insurance headhunter, and then everyone leaves the room. Um, <laughs> I, I will tell you the slight story. It's a massive deviation, but um, I once went to a party. Uh, my friend is a musician. And he's achingly cool. And um, it was in Dalston, obviously, and it was in a flat. And we went there. We didn't realise it was like the rollout of like the, 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 the labels kind of party, but they just happened to be hosting it at his flat. So oh. every single person there was like <coughs> gay or like musician. Oh, <laughs> cool. And he came up to me halfway through because it was like me and my partner at the time, who was a, fu- she's a, she's a, she's an accountant and I was yeah. like, in insurance and he yeah. just came up and he was like mate can you stop stop telling everyone you work in insurance yeah yeah um, yeah just tell him you're a stand-up comedian because i've done like one stand-up gig okay and, and then the funniest thing was because everyone found out that my partner at the time was an accountant they all desperately wanted to speak to her to see how they could lower their tax so she built up this i wasn't cool so i worked in insurance but she's in the corner <laughs> but a tax accountant was goodness <laughs> me the times we live in and actually maybe a reflection on east london i live in bethel green so whilst not achingly cool i am pretty cool and um <laughs> but we're getting to a time where where tax accountants are in demand from you know uh cool party goers in in, yeah. in dalton i mean magnificent yeah i know it's funny old world eh? youtubers looking for tax advice um <laughs> But no, we, we digress slightly. Um, so, you know, the business you, you're talking about, I mean, I, I remember you explained it to me and, and I just kind of leaned in and was, I had this thing of going, well, surely that's been done before. Um, but clearly it hasn't. And, and what is it that you're doing that's kind of, that you're proposing that's different from the kind of status quo? Okay. Well, yeah, challenging the status quo, I think, sounds a bit visceral visceral it sounds a bit loaded with emotion so I choose to frame things in terms of in terms of our purpose right so I think if the purpose of a business being to to create something to make a difference or move something forward and and the purpose of our business for example is to to drive down total costs of risk for our clients Um, this is like a universal objective that every human every business has right Uh, a risk is a cost to the bottom line everybody resents paying insurance premium because they're not getting anything they perceive back for it so uh, some security and some people sort of frame this the the capacity for risk or the enabling enablement of taking entrepreneurial risk as something that is something that you get back for your insurance premium but mm-hmm. the, the 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 objective that people have around the world and have always had we think is to to reduce this total cost of risk it's a universal principle so the way we go about doing this is by creating a new asset class. There have been people who have successfully transferred some direct and facultative reinsurance risk to capital markets before. This hasn't systematically worked. So it, they have, it's been more of a sort of one-off uh, situation. Mm. Um, but, but there is an increasing 
demand for insurable risk in in capital markets, you know, not least because of the you know, neg uh, negative yields that, are, that investor teams are facing in in capital markets. Um, so we're we're sort of uh, we, we're looking at one principle being everybody wants to reduce total cost of risk, and the other the other principle being it makes sense to invest mm -hmm. in reinsurable risk or anything else for that matter, mm -hmm. where the risk adjusted return on capital exceeds the your weighted average cost of capital because that creates value that margin creates value mm -hmm. so when you when you think about yeah you you certainly can think of it as uh challenging the status quo in some aspects because we're proposing to do things differently and to create something but i prefer to look at it yeah, to base this on on first principles and base this on 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 the purpose of a business which is a bit more positive sounding um but but it it's i guess it's the way you tell them right yeah that's true that's true it's it's a podcast though so we like to be challenging we like to say <laughs> we're challenging the status quo the, 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 the doing something productive like you're creating something that's that's not that's no good for me um no <laughs> no, no i no i totally understand and, and and the nuance of language there i think is important um, and as you touched on it's like this has been done but am i right in kind of looking at it from it's not been productized it's not been kind of done at scale and, and that's essentially yeah. kind of where you're proposing. and there are, there are a number of hurdles to this one is uh cultural adversity to change and i want to talk a bit more about that but the other mm. is you know, the perception of there being insufficient data in this particular area of insurance risk um uh the the, the risk being too complex to understand somehow uh, I, I'm a bit of a skeptic of that because uh, capital markets uh, are structured around allocation of real debt and equity capital and cash, uh, whereas insurance markets are purveyors of intangible promises to pay claims that everyone hopes are never called upon. Mm. <laughs> I mean, that, mm. that, may, that may sort of indicate something of the sort of relative attractiveness of of insurance capital markets respectively but um yeah yeah uh, yeah I, there are some cultural factors too yeah I, I, well, I wanted to talk to you about culture because i think that's where i was going with the question about status quo um you know there is definitely a entrenched way london's a, a, a you know very microscopic but you know um it's exaggerated in london exaggerated in lloyd certainly but there is a kind of when you challenge things that's been done before um you know the idea that you simply don't understand or, or you know it's far too complex for that um so you know how important do you think culture is in driving change um well i i culture can be a sort of a major obstruction to change as far as what i'm experiencing now uh can be taken as as evidence of this i mean sample size etc but it, it seems sort of fairly common sense that that uh, the culture is a fairly major obstruction to change and and we've become we've come across sort of two particular cultural barriers to to innovation in our particular context and in the insurance market i mean the first of these is is the the, the way that people are conditioned to look backwards in time mm -hmm. people are conditioned to look at the claims history to, to look at the loss record and uh this is changing to some extent, I, you know, I have to say, because of the you know, forward-looking risk models. Monte Carlo simulation models are used by you know, most teams in, in, in 
the risk transfer world. But it, it's still relatively new as a concept over the sort of 300 year old market term. So, and, and cultural change is sort of famously slow. Um, mm. But but having this sort of this this hindsight hindsight milestone or sorry millstone round your neck kind of does drag things along and it, it does make it difficult to innovate. I think mm. the second thing that, that we've we've noticed that hinders change and is a sort of cultural factor is this the, the, is is the law of big numbers. So the the law of big numbers and and the ability that it presents to to diversify portfolios of different risk exposure is a principle, first principle in insurance. Mm-hmm, Everyone mm-hmm. sort of thinks, but, but for the portfolio. Um, but this is like a complete cultural opposite to the minimum viable product approach using entrepreneurship. Yeah. So, so that, 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 can, that may be a hinder culturally to, to innovation too. Mm-hmm. Um, th- mm-hmm. There are people who are vested in the status quo inevitably and the, the timing of, of innovation change is, is difficult. Also, uh, people are culturally, you know, people are sort of uh, tend to be averse to change in, in every in every fashion. It's quite a sort of human reaction to these mm. things. Mm. But, uh, you know, other than, I, I think there are only sort of three, three uh, perennial certainties, only three constants in life, and they are change, principles and choice so yeah the world is always changing um we have to reposition ourselves restructure and reconfigure things all the time and and businesses are of course part of that mm-hmm. no that's i think that's a really important point um very smart man a friend of mine bruce has always said to me that people never change their mind in the room um, and, and, and and his point being that you know exactly that I think people's gut reaction is to kind of say is to resist change yeah. um, it doesn't mean they won't go with it it just means that the kind of that that, that kind of natural reaction is to um, yeah it's, it's just fear is it it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's it is learn behavior to kind of protect yourself um, yeah. but um, you know I see that in my world so when we're sort of looking at new talent um, if someone leaves or resigns or um, it's it's very common to say, you know, oh, we've lost James from our team. Um, we need to find someone like James to fill that gap. Yeah. And the, the best businesses and, and the most exciting businesses I work with, they say, right, we've lost someone. What's our opportunity here? Do we, yeah. can we, can we bring in different skills? Can we bring in different thoughts with this individual? Um but there's a reason why that's quite rare, and um, and those businesses tend to be quite quite successful. It doesn't doesn't mean that 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 person isn't the right person, and, and actually the profiles can be very similar. But um, you know, at least to inquire about whether you could do something differently, and I think that does kind of lead to culture. Um, but one thing that's kicked around my mind a lot, um, and 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 a question that I know that I kind of posed to you before, is um. Is insurance can insurance or, or businesses can be businesses be, be too profitable to change? So if it, you know that if it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of principle. And do you well, think some of that applies in insurance? I do, I don't know. Okay, sort of zoomed out a little bit. There's no there's no like fundamental requirement for a business to change at all, mm. kind of just for the sake of it, right? No. Um, but I think uh, that the change is driven by by the purpose of the business. Yeah. Mm. And, and the purpose of the business will define how it, and if it changes over time. Mm. I, I sort of 
you know, break things down into, into two stages. The first stage is about racing to get the venture cash flow positive as soon as you possibly can. And the second stage is about generating enough sufficient cash on a sustainable enough basis to enable the team to deliver on its purpose. Mm. Um, you know, if, if it can't do this with the current configuration of, of resources uh, and capabilities, uh, then it does need to change things. Um, simple as that. Um, mm. So if the sole purpose of a business is to, to enrich its shareholders and enrich the private equity owners of the shell company in the Cayman Islands that pays no tax, uh, but owns the business, and people are still happy to work for this business in a way that is commensurate with, with the purpose, then no problem. No need to change at all, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. High levels of M&A and consolidation in the insurance industry right now would seem to suggest that things do need to change. Yeah. Uh, and new operating models are required. Um, so rather than rather being a business that's somehow too profitable to change, Alex, I think it's the other way around completely. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. No, I, 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 would, I would agree with you. I, 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 uh, <laughs> that goes back to my contrarian questioning. I mean, I, I completely agree, but I think that's some of the argument sometimes is that, is that if it isn't broke, don't fix it. And that's where the change resistance comes from on an in individual basis. But absolutely right. If you step back and you say, well, the industry's had profitability problems as a whole, um, you know, and you spoke to something there, which, um, you know, was, was obviously actually very core in my belief systems that, you know, that, that businesses created that only serve to kind of make profit for shareholders are naturally imbued to be resistant to change. Um, because essentially you're saying we want to not pay you out that big dividend because we're going to reinvest that money um, which will be realised in, in net gains in maybe 20, 30 years' time because we've, we've become the dominant player as a result of the investment we make now. Or just paid us coupons to your private equity fund investors. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a very difficult conversation to have. It's a very difficult um, long-term view to have. Um, and maybe that's the problem. I mean, maybe, maybe there is a problem in that and that culturally, even with startups, um, speed is kind of valued so highly you know, it's not enough for you to get there. You have to get there really, really, really quickly. Um, That's a good you know. word for that as well. It begins with A. <laughs> being, being agile. Sorry. Just, uh... I was going to let you say it. I wasn't going to give you the pleasure of me filling that in for you. <laughs> um, um, but I'm often reminded, like Warren Buffett said, um, you know, he said, I, I'm going to, massacre this quote but there's something along the lines of it he gets asked all the time how to get rich quick and he doesn't know how to get rich quick he knows how to get rich slow um, yeah because that's the that's the only way and but there is definitely that's something countercultural to business ethos as we know <coughs> it and coming back to that kind of minimum viable product where the kind of insure tech world i think is at odds with particularly insurance but i think just tech generally is that I totally understand this kind of consistent iteration and cont continuous improvement, minimum viable product. But I do think there's an inherent risk in that kind of thinking and model because um, sometimes it's kind of about speed over kind of being able to take a kind of long-term view about is it the right thing? Um, mm. And that's without getting involved in any sort of ethical 
you know environmental concerns or kind of ethical concerns in kind of terms of kind of value chains um just kind of stepping back and going well this is the right thing to do on the longer scale so um good question i mean time scales and people's objectives over those time scales variously do do vary don't they and um you know i um i'm 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 a millennial okay I'm, i i i wave this flag saying I'm a millennial because I think I'm just a millennial by about a year. <laughs> I was born in, in 1982, uh, which I think the cutoff is 1981. So I'm very happy to say I'm a millennial, but, uh, yeah. but maybe that maybe people talk about millennials being, you know, you know focused on purpose. I, I believe that, but, but also the, the, it, it, the, the horizon that I'm looking at, the investments that I'm making as a business now um, and looking at the, the, horizon that I've got in terms of a, a career ahead of me they're quite different from somebody who's you know uh, maybe you know quite as old as you Alex or 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 uh, or significantly older than that well I was born in like the 81 so <laughs> okay okay so you're a millennial too <laughs> my, my joke kind of backfired all right fair enough so thanks for that um but um but look, I think we touched on it a little bit there, actually. Um, you know, we've, we've both worked in the insurance market, you uh, much more significantly than I and, and much more successfully than I. Um, but um, uh, I wanted to ask you about your experience a bit, you know, and I think I'll, this goes into that kind of change uh, bucket. Um, do, you, do you think the leadership of insurance particularly is still quite elitist? Is it still too centralised? Um, I suppose, um, you know, do, we, do, do you think we need to encourage greater diversity um, and then we'll see more embracement of new ideas? Well, okay, interesting. I, I, I'm not sure if insurance is all that elitist. As far as I'm concerned, insurance is a bit of an ugly duckling in terms of the City of London, at least. Um, or maybe it's just a sort of ugly duckling in comparison with, with investment banking and consulting and law. Um, but it's probably fair to say that elitism in the market has been an issue. I mean, I probably didn't go to the right school to get into the upper echelons of executive leadership of city insurance market businesses right now as they stand. Mm. Um, but the, the, the question of is greater diversity required? Um, required for what? I mean, if you mean is greater diversity required to ensure that the market remains relevant, as a market, the you know, marketplace for solving risk problems, mm. probably yes, because solving risk problems requires you to understand the language, the people, and the, the local dynamics in any particular situation, wherever you are in the world. Uh, and diverse teams that reflect the, the world that we live in would seem to be likely to make it a, us able to, 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 to solve these risk problems better. Um, and it would seem to be likely to be a better way to structure upper echelons of executive leadership in the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it, I mean, it's, it's 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 statistically more diverse, certainly more diverse leadership teams um, have businesses that perform consistently more uh, profitably and, and successfully. Um, but and, and, and but. I've never seen the breakdown of the microcosm of, of why that why people think that is. I mean, I. I think better, more ideas and better ideas is usually kind of where I'm looking at and go, well, that, that's always a kind of better way of looking at it. Um, but certainly kind of in the way... It's better or different ways of looking at it, right? I mean, because 
we can all be looking at the same the same fact but if the lens that we use to look at that fact is different mm. then we could always get a different take on that from our own perspective and i think that enables mm. us to look at I don't want to sort of pedal the metaphor too much, but three mm. D, different color perspectives, this kind of thing. I think I, I'll leave it there. No, and I think that's where I was coming from on the kind of um, elitist was a terrible choice of word. Um, <laughs> probably, probably tied that out in, in a very tired moment, but um, I, I think narrow in terms of kind of the worldview, and I think that's kind of where I was coming from. You know, the the, the pool of the, the pool of talent, um, particularly at that leadership level, is 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 pretty narrowly you know picked um white you know. bald middle-aged you mean like the two of us yeah i mean we're we're we're, we're growing into those people um, <laughs> <laughs> but because we're still millennials we're too we're too yeah. okay, so that's the problem that's yeah what it is. that's right <laughs> yeah uh, we'll, we'll, i'm gonna leave it there um you know your what i wanted to pick your brains on is about um uh other forms of capital, alternative forms of capital, um, hedge funds. Um, obviously, insurance is intertwined to a certain degree. Um, but do you think insurance could benefit from more directly engaging with other forms of capital? Um, because I, it seems to me that there's just things to learn, um, a lot of things to learn in terms of the way they approach risk, the way that they kind of, uh, you know, modeling, for example. Um, yeah, I wondered if you could speak to that because I know that you've been engaging directly with yeah, alternative capital. Yeah, sure. I, I Firstly, I think the convergence is inevitable. Mm. So I don't really look at it like there being a cost benefit or pros and cons of greater interaction with capital markets. I think it's inevitable. Um, and early on in my career, I finished uh, my morning of standing in queues waiting for to under, for underwriters at Lloyds of London. I walked 200 metres north up Bishopsgate to where my flatmate worked for a, for a hedge fund trading German government bond futures. Mm. In, less, in a little less than an hour, I watched him win in 10 trades and lose in six, and his account was up 10,000 euros. You know? uh, and I, I then walked back to Lloyds and queued for another two hours before spending 20 minutes talking about a single risk with uh, Syndicate 510, negotiating about the provision of, of, of capital that's dressed up in hundreds of pages of terms and conditions. It's contingent upon there being a claim and which no one wanted to ever call upon anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so, so since then, I've been sure that we'd, be, we'd see convergence between insurance and capital markets. Um, Deloitte valued global reinsurance markets at two and a half trillion in uh, 2018. Um, and around the same time, McKinsey put a number of 300 trillion on global capital markets. So it gives you an idea of the sort of the scale and the, 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 the subset we're talking about here. Um, mm. and if we call, if we, if we call treaty reinsurance, half of this two and a half trillion that Deloitte put on um, on the market, then where cap bonds have existed for about 25 years now, then we've got about 1.25 trillion of direct and facultative reinsurance risk yet to collateralize. So, you know, yet to transfer to capital markets. So th these are these are markets where 
investors are otherwise faced with negative yield. So it's about communicating and translating some of the differences in jargon, terminology, esoteric nature of the, the transactions and some of the history mm-hmm. uh, between the two markets, because they're, they're both uh, they're, they're both challenging to interpret from from the outside. Mm-hmm. But uh, because of if, if, and it's now a few years on from my stroll up the road to watch German government bonds get traded. Um, it, it now actually costs you money to uh, to lend your cash to the German government, um, and the, the negative yield is accentuating the the likelihood of this convergence. You know, mm. um, the, the the negative yield in German government bonds, however, isn't as bad as the negative the ten percent uh, loss of gross margin or negative yield that was derived from underwriting risk at Lloyd's last year. Yeah. Uh, funnily enough. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I I agree with you. It's it, it's there's a little bit of education. There's a little kind of you know c- clearing up the terms. I mean, we we were having a conversation, and I, I just yeah, you put it in really simple terms to me, and saying that you know essentially translating it into insurance speak, and then translating it back, and certainly kind of some of that going on. But um, I was interested that um, you know the conversation we had before the appetite in some of those alternative markets when you've presented some of the returns that are possible. Um, the scale of that appetite was quite was quite shocking to me. It's probably maybe it's not shocking to anyone else, but it was just kind of um, the, the appetite appears to be there for the business. Indeed, yeah, no, it's um, we, we the the low correlation nature of insurance risk versus uh, the yields in government bonds is mm. well celebrated there's there's a huge uh suggestion and movement of people who are very encouraging of the insurance market being able to push the esg uh themes that are evident through the through this market too to attract more capital but like mm. capital isn't the issue no uh, there, there's a there's a sort of global surplus and capital abundance in capital markets and the insurance market currently is in distress because of uh for 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 income reasons there's not a, a limit of capacity standing on the wings looking circling uh waiting for uh risk adjusted returns that are driven by underlying insurance risk so it's quite a uh to, to think of them to think of insurance being super complex different you know not understandable to anybody else outside is a little narcissistic i think it's it does make the, the translation of jargon terminology a thing and it's a translation exercise as much as it is me requiring an oyster card to get onto the underground a bank station and go 15 minutes west to bond street uh to Berkeley Square. I mean, it's it's it it there's there's a world there's a it's a world away in terms of the the, the terminology we're using, the analytics we're using, <clears throat> the understanding of of risk. But but capital markets move real cash around rather than promises that are contingent upon solvency and could be defaulted upon by risk carriers, however well they're rated. So. That, that's the, the difference. I mean, I read in 
about 2018 that um uh, this is oliver Payne in the financial times reported that on average it took uh hundred companies you know largest companies in britain on average 19 months to get their claims settled wow. i mean that's that's incredible i then to sort of because I was a bit concerned about how the capital markets might handle things in, in contrast. Well, I asked a few people and they said that you know, for, the, for the structure you're proposing, uh, you can expect, you, I don't think settlement is possible within 48, 48 hours, but it would be between within 72. So, wow. <laughs> I mean, wow. there, there, there may be capital efficiency, cost of capital reasons to do these trades, to transfer risk to capital markets, but there's also uh, time value of money-based uh, attractions too. Mm, mm. Yeah, I mean, so that's the thing. That, that, the, the claim cycle's always been hugely inefficient. Um, and look, it, it, you know, I'm not saying claims should be paid when, they, um, when, they, when they're not due, um, but... You know, you look at that process, and yeah, you know, what someone's buying is a promise to pay. Um, it just—it's overwhelmingly long-winded in terms of kind of getting to that event, and then and then and then that kind of devalues what you've what you've purchased in the first place. Um, you know, it, it's fine. It's, it might be fine if you're a FTSE company, but we take that down a notch and we look at smaller organisations as well. Um, you know, that's the difference between someone staying afloat or someone not. So maybe existential, as you say. I mean, COVID. We've seen that recently, haven't we? I mean, um, the the payback, uh, the bounce back loan um, facility from the government has, you know, enabled people to remain solvent for a longer period of time. Now, whether they're, these are sort of walking wounded or mm. whether these are zombie companies is is a matter of debate in some situations, but. Mm -hmm. um, Cash, quick cash, instant solvency is a is is a thing. It's a mm. it's a valuable resource. Mm. Um, I'm interested to see, you know, working in a in a, in a marketplace. Um, there is there is a bit of group think going on. Uh, I wanted to ask you the question of how do you uh, how do you escape being like captured by the culture? Like how, how do you think differently in a, in a in a in an environment which is kind of potentially resistant to change? Um, well, risk is any uncertainty affecting future cash flows, right? Mm -hmm. So why can't we build an agile team that uses data analytics to look at any kind of reinsurable risk exposure? Why can't we use cap bond structures in other insurable risk contexts to transfer risk to private capital markets? Mm -hmm. For me, thinking differently has been about standing back and asking why, why, why? <laughs> it's been about uh, presenting an anonymized cash flow model for a standard reinsurance transaction to, to a hedge fund who couldn't believe what they were seeing mm. and then try to help them to navigate the, the jargon, terminology, smoke and mirrors that the insurance industry uses to dress things up in. Um, but but where, where leaders and boards are virtually all of one thing in particular or another, where middle management are clinging onto the status quo for dear life for the last five years of their career, mm. um, understandably, things become intransient and people and businesses become averse to change. A group thing becomes a thing, binding people together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, no, I completely understand. And I think, 
yeah, middle management is, um, I mean, look, middle management is always the thing that's a threat with any technological change, right? Because essentially you're usually making something more efficient, um, whether it's communication or process. And that's usually the fiefdoms in which kind of a middle management role would sit. It's, it's generally administrative and it's kind of either distribution of work or communication or, you know, it obviously can be more than that. But if we kind of distilled it down, that's essentially where a lot of these roles sit. And they, they're very valuable. But when change happens, it can make them unnecessary. Um, you know, new processes, new structures, new technologies that kind of replace some of that. Um, and I think that's, but it is where some of the power is held. So the kind of resistance to change is driven from there. So I think particularly that kind of middle management is exactly um, where the resistance to change happens. So yeah. that does kind of lead back into what we were talking about before. And I think that's where diversity of thought certainly in the kind of actual genuine leadership of a business is incredibly important because they they can look at these structures differently it's a bit like bringing in people from outside the insurance industry to come and work in the insurance industry you know what's the what's to stop us hiring the best people from open banking to kind of come and look at the way that we're challenging insurance Uh, well if you do you beat you'll be beating me to it (laughs) (laughs) Um, no definitely there's there are there are um large scale restructurings that can be learned from there are financial innovations on a kind of system-wide basis like open banking to -hmm. be learned from but there are there there are risk modeling capabilities to be learned from there's structuring uh opportunities to be learned from um Mm -hmm. and we we should be outward looking in terms of uh, trying to put together as many different perspectives on these things as as, as we can. I mean, it gets a bit of a challenge because asking everybody's opinion uh, and it being different means that we have to be quite effective at saying that it's not bogging us down and us still being mm. committed to action. Um, mm. But uh, but yeah, yeah, you know, more diverse thought I think has got to be. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely fundamental. Um, you, uh, you've, um, I was going to ask you about an MBA because um, you, you you studied your MBA. Um, do you think that's helped with the way that you approach business and the way you thought? Um, this is this is selfishly because I'm considering doing an MBA, and I, I, but as someone that works in talent and 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 acquisition of people, I, I'm surprised. I see I see quite a lot of people that do the MBAs, but not in the kind of context of like the American system where almost everyone does an MBA before starting work. Um, I don't know if we do enough continuous learning. And I think an MBA is um, a really valuable thing to pick up if you're going to be someone like an insurance executive. Um, do you think it's helped you? Um, yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I didn't have a first degree and this meant I couldn't go to a particularly elite or prestigious business school. But the Open University in the UK accepted my chartered insurance broking studies as an entry point for my MBA. Mm-hmm. Um, and this meant my MBA was all about inordinate number of Saturday mornings and weekday evenings, learning about things like efficient market hypothesis and, and wondering about the inefficiency of the hypotheses in the London market uh, insurance businesses in, in contrast, frankly. Mm-hmm. I mean, quite a few management theorists seem to be on sort of completely different planets from me and um management mumbo jumbo is a real thing alex Mm. uh, i reckon Mm -hmm. Uh, but my mba gave me 
uh, gave me tools in strategy and cash flow modeling, which has enabled me to you know, not just think about different ways of doing things, but to actually raise capital for a new business and, and to get to day one and actually do it. Um, and the ACI was, was a vital stepping stone for me as I couldn't have got into business school without it. Uh, and my ACI helped me to learn that insurance comes down to, you know, five common principles and whichever insurance type or class you're, you're talking about too. So um, there's, I guess, the, the possibility that insurance is a, as a sort of uniform entry point and box ticking exercise could be thought of as a driver of group think that you mentioned previously, but mm-hmm. I don't think this is so. I mean, I, th- I think that group think is more driven by, by the number of people with the same interests and, and not enough dissent. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I, yeah, as, as in terms of education routes and the validity of ACII and MBA and other things, um, I'm about the last person that should be consulted on education timing, on content, on pathways, because I've taken a very, very unconventional route. Mm-hmm. But, but I think I think your route speaks to something because I, I, you know, in my world, it's 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 really interesting that you know the fundamentals of insurance. Uh, 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 there's some parallels, you know, the fundamentals of how I do my role, how how you work as an executive search consultant don't change dramatically you might have different tools and there's slightly different nuances and there's different businesses that you're working with so the profiles change but the fundamentals don't and 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 therefore kind of the you're not learning enough from outside influences to kind of potentially change and challenge the process and i think where i was kind of intrigued and you know i think the aci is really important because you can't challenge things well if you don't know the fundamentals uh, it's a bit like you you know you're trying to propose something which is slightly different in the world of reinsurance but if you don't understand ins- reinsurance really really well it's going to be very difficult to kind of challenge that status quo um, that's definitely the case hmm, so you need to ACI to break it but I just I just wonder whether we could expand upon this kind of thought process of continuous learning and, and I think things like MBAs are pathways to that but you know potentially there could be more done from a kind of centralized point from insurance and as we, mm. as things like you know, data science become more intrinsic in our business, and understanding data as an executive, for example, um, yeah, these sorts of skill sets, because that's enabling more ideas to come into the business. So I think someone taking the, you know, the sort of, as you put it, the sort of more indirect pathway to more education. Um, I think we need more of that, um, and I don't see, I don't just, I just don't think we see it enough. Yeah, you know, for, for me, I, I, I think the sort of continual professional development thing is all, you know, very good thing, all that kind of stuff. But I, I actually, I look at it in a slightly different way. When I, when I started in my career, I could, I saw, as I said, you know, this big com- contrast between insurance capital markets and thought consolidation will happen. You know, uh, commoditization of credit markets happened. That was a massive disruption to uh, capital markets and banking. You've got uh, stockbrokers used to be wearing pinstripe suits walking up and down roads <laughs> around here, and there aren't many of those now. They're, they're websites. Um, so that's, that's an area too. This open banking initiative 
is incredibly interesting and it, it passes the power of the ownership of data onto the principal and not people who are intermediaries in the chain that um, that own that that data. So that, that's interesting too. But for, for me, the my my MBA, I just I guess has been a sort of a lens through which I can see these different pro, uh, problems. I mean, in some areas, it's been so focused that I've been really quite disappointed with what I can see around me. But that has only helped me to understand why it exists as it does, uh, what the opportunities may be to do things differently, and then also how to how to how to surf a, a wave of convergence which is what i foresee i mean this is what solvency 2 is 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 uh, mandating making a requirement too you know the, mm -hmm. the ultra high levels of operating leverage that have been possible through reinsurance for 300 years mm -hmm. are starting to be unwound you know, is it going to be sudden no is cultural change sudden no but it is it is, is really happening so uh what probably happens i think i can't be completely sure because i could be standing accusing Lloyds of London in five years time but what what probably happens I think is that reinsurable risk moves predominantly direct and facultative reinsurance moves predominantly to capital markets and mm. and I want to be I, I want to use this to drive down total cost of risk for my clients because mm. that's a universal objective of everybody <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think I think it's not. I think that's part of the problem. I think that's why you're onto something. But no, I, I completely agree with you. Um, but James, I'm conscious of our time. So um, I think that's a really nice and neat place to end on. So um, we, we hope not to see you into a, into a queue in Lloyd's um, in five years' time. Uh, we hope <laughs> to see you um, uh, 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 running. Uh, I, listen, I don't mind queue jumping to get a coffee, okay? And <laughs> I, I, I foresee, I think what Lloyd's really should be and do and structure itself around is a facilitator for managing general agencies because you've got a uh, 300 years ago the vehicle that was being used to innovate to to push things forward to create things was the the syndicate but i think now uh, syndicates are strategies for large corporates around the world but the 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 tool, the operating model that, that is being used and can be used to innovate is the MGA. So Lloyd should be focused around you know, MGA teams and, and risk advisory teams like ours, but, mm -hmm. but that should be the focus of this. And so when it comes to queuing in Lloyd's, if I'm having to queue in Lloyd's for you know, reasonably priced coffee in, a, uh, a, in, in advance of a very good business meeting with a, a team of really innovative underwriters and mj uh folk then then bring it on quite frankly yeah 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 no i like the sound of that i'm a big fan of that model so um as we see on previous podcasts i might even shamelessly plug another podcast about mga <laughs> um but i won't do that but james thank you so much for your time i uh, really appreciate you being a guest and um yeah i look forward to keeping you in touch fantastic thank you thank you
As always, this podcast is brought to you by FinPro Search Partners, often simply known as FinPro. FinPro is an executive recruitment business working in the insurance and insure tech space on an international basis. If you would like to find out more about FinPro, please visit our website, www.wearefinpro.com or our FinPro company page on LinkedIn. I've been your host, Alex Bond, and I would personally love to connect with anyone who is interested in the changing world of insurance. So feel free to reach out to me directly, um, either on LinkedIn or via my email, uh, alex at wearefinpro.com. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and I hope to see you back next week. Thank you.